You're listening to Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Ferrett. Now, the U.S. House of Representatives is still without a speaker since Kevin McCarthy was ousted last week. That was following a single member's motion to vacate, a condition that McCarthy had allowed for as part of his package of conditions that won him enough votes to become speaker. Republican Majority Leader in the House, Representative Steve Scalise of Louisiana, looked to be the nominee, garnering more internal votes in the conference than Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. Then last night, Scalise announced he was pulling out. I just share with my colleagues that I'm withdrawing my name as a candidate for the Speaker-designee. If you look at over the last few weeks, if you look at where our conference is, there's still work to be done. Uh, Our conference still has to come together and is not there. Uh, There are still some people that have their own agendas. And I was very clear, we have to have everybody put their agendas on the side and focus on what this country needs. This country is counting on us to come back together. This House of Representatives needs a speaker, and we need to open up the House again. We want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Who do you think should be Speaker of the House? Do you want to see Democrats engage with Republicans and make some sort of deal to bring on a more moderate speaker? How do you see that working? What questions do you have about what the country can and can't do without a functioning House of Representatives? Call us at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Anthony Tregoski is, is an assistant professor of political science at UW Lacrosse. Anthony, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we have got uh, a lot of news in the last week, just in the last 24 hours. But before we get to that, let's back up and get a little context here. You suggest that we should look back to the 2022 midterm elections as a, sort of a marker of how we got here. Can you talk about that? Sure. In the 2022 midterm elections, the Republicans gained only nine seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, there was a lot of hype about the prospect of a red wave materializing in the 2022 midterms. And it's understandable why there would have been that type of speculation. After all, we know that historically, the party of the president has not done well in midterm elections. So a lot of people were expecting the Democrats to do very poorly in the midterm elections and the Republicans to do quite well. However, House Republicans lost a lot of competitive districts. Their candidates did not do well in many of the competitive districts, the swing districts, and the Republicans more broadly were harmed by the backlash to the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. So all of that adds up to a poorer than expected performance for Republicans in the 2022 midterm elections. It does give them a razor thin majority in the House. That means in practice, to become Speaker, Kevin McCarthy had to make deals with all sorts of factions, all sorts of individuals within the House Republican Conference. And in doing that, he really laid the groundwork for his own demise as Speaker. He made it possible for any one member of the House to trigger a motion to vacate, which would lead to a vote on removing the Speaker. As we saw, Matt Gates of Florida did exactly that. 
So the broader context here is significant. If the Republicans had an overwhelming majority in the House of Representatives, then a few dissenters here and there, a few people who don't want to go with the party line, well, that wouldn't really matter so much if they had a large majority. But they have a razor thin majority, such a small margin for error. And that means that Almost everyone in the House Republican conference has to be on board, and we have seen that they are just not a unified front nowadays. <laughs> when I heard Steve Scalise say that there is still work to be done, that seemed to be the understatement of the century, perhaps. There is a lot of work to be done in the House Republican conference to get to the point where they are able to elect a new Speaker of the House. So after McCarthy was ousted, we saw Representatives Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise emerge as the two primary candidates, and Scalise won the most votes in an internal uh, party vote to become the nominee. That's what we thought we would be talking with you about today, Anthony, but then last night he announced he was withdrawing. Do we know what happened? Why? Steve Scalise was just not able to get to the magic number, 217. There are currently 433 members of the House of Representatives, so a majority is 217. It is true that Steve Scalise won that internal vote within the House Republican Conference, but to become Speaker of the House, he needs to win a majority of the overall membership of the House of Representatives. That means that 217 of the House Republicans would have needed to be on board in order to elect him speaker. And it was quickly apparent that he had an uphill battle to get to that 217 magic number. In fact, the uphill battle seemed so significant that he quickly bowed out of the race to become speaker. He quickly ended his efforts to become speaker, even after he had been chosen by a majority of his House Republican colleagues. Now, Scalise has, for a period of time, been the second-ranking House Republican. He has generated some goodwill within his party due to his high-ranking position, but there were different areas of opposition that emerged within the party, and it just seemed like too steep of a hill for him to climb in his view. So that left him in the position where he decided to remain majority leader. Meanwhile, Jim Jordan, the hard-charging member of the Republican conference, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, he has become well-known for his frequent appearances on Fox News. He has become a, a very well-known for his outspokenness and his confrontational style in these high-profile committee hearings that he has participated in. And he stepped up today as a speaker candidate, having lost previously to Scalise. He wins the vote today, but he still is nowhere near that 217 magic number. It leaves the House Republicans in a state of turmoil, and it leaves a real, real sense of uncertainty in the Capitol as the Republicans continue to try to figure out their next move here. We're talking with Anthony Tregoski, Assistant Professor of Political Science at UW-La Crosse, about the effort to elect a new House Speaker. Uh, we uh, talked with Representative Tom Tiffany on the morning show this morning, and he was asked about the Freedom Caucus, who has been a big player in all of the House Speaker drama we've seen over the past few weeks. Here's what he said to host Kate Archer Kent. Have you had conversations with, with members of the Freedom Caucus? Do you know what they want here? 
Yeah, so this is not just the Freedom Caucus. So primarily them in regards to the McCarthy fight, but with um, Leader Scalise, that was not the Freedom Caucus that scuttled his candidacy. You had people that you would call much more moderate, for example, Nancy Mays from South Carolina, that were not supporting um, Scalise. So that was not a Freedom Caucus problem for um, Leader Scalise. I think that we need to get someone that bridges those um, philosophical divisions and brings us together. Hopefully we'll get that person that can bring unity, vision, and leadership um, for us as the next speaker. Anthony, what do you think about uh, what Representative Tiffany had to say there about the role of the Freedom Caucus? Yeah, I'm just not sure who that person is that would be able to bridge those divides within the Republican Party. Now, to the point about the Freedom Caucus, Jim Jordan is a relevant figure here because he is a founding member of the House Freedom Caucus. The House Freedom Caucus in the Republican Party became very well known for its use of hardball legislative tactics. Of course, it wouldn't be surprising that they would play hardball in a speaker's election, that they might try to get concessions from Scalise or that they might try to hold up the process to get something out of this process that they feel is important to them. But to Representative Tiffany's broader point about unity within the Republican conference, I'm just not sure who that person is who can bridge those very real divides that Representative Tiffany discussed. And it just leaves the House Republicans adrift at this point, trying to figure out who is that person who can bridge those divides. Now, in the past, Dean, it was Paul Ryan, Wisconsin's own Paul Ryan. After the downfall of John Boehner as speaker in the latter parts of the Obama presidency, Paul Ryan emerged as the person who could bring the Republican Party together. He could unite the different factions of the Republican Party, and everyone could more or less be on board with the idea of a Ryan speakership. Right now, there is no Paul Ryan figure that I'm aware of who can emerge as the person who can bring everyone together, make everyone happy, and the party can unify behind them. It just is far from clear who that person might be. And Anthony, when it comes to those sticking points and making people happy, I'm curious what you're seeing. Are the points of contention more around, I don't know, rules and committee assignments and that kind of thing? Or are there significant policy issues here that wings of the party are disagreeing on? I think it's a combination of both. There are some tactical differences in the Republican Party. We noted Jim Jordan and the House Freedom Caucus and their penchant for hardball tactics. They have talked about impeaching Joe Biden. They have talked about other things to really try to bring the fight to the Democratic Party and really have high stakes showdowns with President Biden and the Republican majority in the Senate. So for sure, there are tactical issues at play here. There are also some policy differences inside the Republican Party. And the combination of internal policy disagreement and internal tactical disagreement just makes it all the more difficult to the party to, for the party to find that consensus speaker candidate who can unify the party around a common policy and tactical approach. Anthony Tregoski stays with us, Assistant Professor of Political Science at UW-La Crosse, talking about the latest efforts to fill a vacant Speaker of the House position. We want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. 
What questions do you have for our guest about how all this works? What's your reaction to what's happening in the House? If you're a Republican voter, how do you want to see this resolved? Who would you want as Speaker? Call in with your thoughts and questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or you can email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter. We continue our talk about the Speaker of the House vacancy with Anthony Tregoski, Assistant Professor of Political Science at UW-La Crosse. We're also taking your calls at 800 642 one, two, three, four. Let's go to the phones now. We have Mark in Hartford. Hi, Mark. Hey, Mark, are you there? Oh, Mark, I think our connection is bad. I'm sorry, but uh, Mark was pointing out that um, the Democratic Party is sticking together throughout this process as he sees it, and the Republicans are not, and he wants to see them come together and solve this issue. Anthony, can you talk about, I don't know, how the the Democrats are are reacting to this entire process? I think that's an excellent point. After Nancy Pelosi bowed out of the House Democratic leadership, a natural question was who would emerge as her successor at the top of the House Democratic leadership system. And Hakeem Jeffries of New York emerged as that consensus candidate among House Democrats. There has been very little internal dissent, no public dissent that I'm aware of in the House Democratic Caucus when it comes to their support for Hakeem Jeffries as their leader. Now, strategically for the Democrats, they have some interesting decisions here. Do they maintain a unified front and oppose anyone who the Republicans might put up as a speaker candidate? Do they try to make a deal with some of those moderate House Republicans, those Republicans who come from districts that are highly competitive, those House Republicans who come from districts that Joe Biden carried in the previous presidential election? Now, previously, Dean, the idea of a bipartisan vote for a speaker would be simply comical. Votes for speaker are along party line. That is what we would expect. But there does seem to be some perhaps serious talk emerging in Washington about a bipartisan coalition that might elect a speaker. And I don't know exactly what to make of that. It is just so unfamiliar, such an unusual situation to be in. But that is something that Democrats are going to have to figure out. Do they maybe want to work with Republicans to elect a speaker, put together that majority coalition on the floor? Or do they want to maintain kind of an approach that, hey, the Republicans have to figure this out. This is not our problem. This is something that internally the Republicans have to figure out. So a lot of the focus is naturally on the turmoil within the House Republican conference, but the Democrats have a potentially interesting role to play here as well. Let's go next to Rob in Winona, Minnesota. Rob, hello. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I'm just wondering if the Republicans can't for a lengthy period of time, uh, coalesce on a speaker, what happens to legislation in the United States? Rob, that's a great question. A timely one. Anthony, what do you think? Well, the obvious answer is nothing much. Without a Speaker of the House, there isn't much that the House of Representatives can do. 
One thing that I would watch for on that note, though, is to watch the potential role of the Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. Now, his role is mainly just to facilitate the election of a new speaker. But there might be some scenario where he gets empowered to move legislation forward or to just get things moving again policy-wise. That would be a Band-Aid solution that is not a long-term fix to this problem. Overall, the way out of this is to elect a new speaker, but a stopgap situation might be to temporarily empower McHenry as someone who can get things moving a little bit policy-wise. Rob, thanks for the call and the question. Uh, We'll go next to Sarah in Libertyville, Illinois. Sarah, hi. Hey, listen, I think I read, but I'm not sure, so I'm asking that the reason Steve Scalise was not confirmed is because the Freedom Caucus he wasn't extreme enough for the freedom caucus is that is that true and because that's just really scary and so what about jim jordan will they support him gotcha sarah thanks for the question anthony what do we know about uh, where the opposition to scalise came from Well, statistically, based on political scientists' statistical measures of ideology, Scalise is more conservative than most House Republicans. But Jim Jordan is way more conservative than most House Republicans. So the comparison here might be relevant in explaining what happened. Certainly, given the comparison between the two, Jordan is clearly the most conservative option, even though on balance, Scalise is quite a conservative Republican. We have also seen support for Scalise emerge from former President Trump, as well as conservative media personalities. For example, on social media today, Sean Hannity posted his support for uh, Jim Jordan as speaker and urged his followers to call members of Congress to support Jim Jordan. Now, on that note, Dean, I would just mention that according to an analysis done by Media Matters, which is a liberal media watchdog group, they found that over the past roughly six years, no other sitting member of Congress has made as many appearances on Fox News as Jim Jordan has. So I expect that there is going to be significant grassroots conservative support for Jim Jordan as speaker. He is such a familiar presence on conservative media like Fox News, and he has gained a national following given his high profile position on the House Judiciary Committee. I don't know how much that moves the needle for him. He's got a lot of House Republicans he would need to flip in order to become speaker. But Jordan does have that national profile owing to his eagerness to involve himself in political controversies and his very, very frequent presence in conservative media. We've got time for one more call. Let's go to Charles in Wausau. Hi, Charles. Hi there. I would love to see a bipartisan effort to elect a new speaker. I live in uh, Representative Tiffany's district, so (laughs) if he's listening, I would love to see some kind of bipartisan effort happen. Um, But my question is, when Kevin McCarthy was booted out, um, I was so surprised to see universally, uh, unanimously rather, all of the Democrats, you know, voted to do the same. That just seems so irresponsible. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I just think that that was, with all of the things that need to be done in the House, how could they do that? Charles, thanks for the call. And there is a lot of important stuff on the table. Budget, 
the conflict in Israel and Palestine. There's a lot going on, Anthony, but it also seems like there would be a lot of deal-making that needs to be done to get to that bipartisan place. I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, the Democrats would have had to be offered a very good deal from speak, former Speaker McCarthy and his allies in order to get on board in saving his position. And the reporting indicates that there simply was not an, an offer made from McCarthy and his allies to House Democrats that could have perhaps saved McCarthy's position. And that's just how D.C. works. There has been talk about how Democrats maybe should have tried to save McCarthy for the good of the institution. But there has to be something more than that. That's just how D.C. works. It's just the realities of D.C. There ha- would have had to have been some serious concessions made to House Democrats for them to get on board with that plan. And so we'll have to see what the future holds for the prospect of a bipartisan speaker. It just seems preposterous given how we have traditionally thought about House leadership positions and the speakership. But hey, I mean, we we also thought we wouldn't be in this situation either. So we are truly in a weird and uncertain situation as we continue watching the turmoil in D.C. unfold. And Anthony, we've just got about 20 seconds left. When could we see a House floor vote on the speakership, do you think? One thing that Jim Jordan might do is just go to the floor for a vote and force his opponents to go on the record against him. I don't know if that'll happen, but it is certainly available to him as a strategy. A lot to follow, a lot going on. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Anthony Tregoski is an assistant professor of political science at UW-La Crosse. We talked with him about the current struggle in the House of Representatives to replace Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. Coming up Monday on Central Time, Wisconsin is cleaning up some of its PFAS pollution and sending the waste to Alabama. We'll find out about the concerns it's raising for people in the South. And we'll learn about staffing shortages in the state prison system and poor conditions for incarcerated people. That and more coming up Monday here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Ferret. You're with us on the Ideas Network. Over 40 million Americans suffer from migraines. About three-fourths of those are women. Migraines aren't just a headache. They're a neurological disorder with other symptoms like nausea and vomiting, light, sound, and smell sensitivity, in addition to the head pain that can last anywhere from several hours to several days. In recent years, we've made major advances in migraine treatment, including new drugs and wearable devices. In spite of those advances, though, the majority of people who have migraines never seek proper diagnosis and treatment. We're talking about the gap between migraine research and people's lived experience, and we want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Do you suffer from migraines? Have you been able to get that official diagnosis and treatment? Have you found a treatment that works for you, that makes you feel better? How have migraines affected your daily life? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Marina Corin is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Her recent piece is titled, It's the Best Time in History to Have a Migraine, So Why Doesn't It Feel That Way? Marina, welcome back to Central Time. Hi, Dean. Thanks for having me. Well, as I just mentioned, a migraine is a lot more than a run-of-the-mill headache, and that's not a surprise to anyone who's had this, including yourself. Um, Can you start us off by... Just talking about some of the big ways these can differ from normal headaches and just how bad it can get. 
That's right. Yeah. Migraines are way more complicated than just a simple headache. Um, definitely there is headache pain, often throb, often throbbing pain in one side of the head, but then you also have symptoms like nausea, vomiting, sensitivity to light and noise. Um, and as you said earlier, these symptoms can last for hours or days. And then there is something called the migraine hangover, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, you know, after the worst symptoms have passed, um, some migraine sufferers can feel fatigue, they have trouble concentrating, and they experience dizziness. So um, the experts that I talked to for this story, they all referred to migraines as attacks. And I'd never thought to call them that way, even call them by that, even though I've had migraines for years. Um, but what an accurate term to describe the experience of a migraine. And it sounds like based on surveys and research, um, that it can have a real impact on people's lives personally, professionally. What did you find out? Yeah, migraine is a condition that really affects every part of your daily life, right? You know, if you have a migraine and you have to go pick up your kid at school, that's going to be harder than on the non-migraine day, right? So um, people who have migraines, you know, they'll cancel plans and feel guilty about it. They'll struggle to parent. They'll call in sick to work if they can. And if they can't, then they'll move through the workday like zombies. Um, and research has shown that um, migraine is, uh, you know, many, one of the reasons that people are just kind of coasting at work sometimes and not really fully there. It's because they're working through something like migraine. Um, so it really can affect every aspect of life and, you know, take a couple days away from you if you have a per month, if you have something called episodic migraine. Um, but if you have chronic migraine, you're looking at, you know, 15 or more days of the month where you are really struggling through these symptoms. And as it stands right now, do we know what exactly is happening in the brain and in the body during a migraine? Yeah, that is an interesting question. And I remember um, when I was getting into the final edits of this piece, I was running the language of, you know, some of the really nitty gritty stuff about how this works past my sources, the researchers. And they said, yeah, that's close enough. <laughs> that's as best as we can get, right? Because the exact cause of migraine is still a mystery, but scientists and researchers are getting closer to understanding the pathways um, that are involved. So, uh, years ago, migraines were thought to be a vascular disorder, that there was something happening in the blood flow in the brain and changes in that blood flow that would then contribute to migraine symptoms. Um, definitely that plays a role in an attack, but now scientists understand that the chaos actually comes from within the nervous system. And so um, the best understanding right now is that there is this nerve that provides sensation to the face and something happens to stimulate that nerve, which then triggers cells in the brain to release neurotransmitters that then produce headache pain. How the other symptoms of migraines arise, that's a bit more mysterious, um, but it is definitely understood today as a nervous system issue, as a neurological disorder. And from reading your piece, I learned that maybe at first migraine was seen as a a distinct category of disorder that needed its own research. And then it kind of got lumped in with a lot of other things and a, a stigma arose around it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. Yeah. Um, there has been some research done that, you know, um, in medieval times, for example, in classical times, um, migraines, as you said, were considered to be a serious disorder that required, you know, serious focus and, and study. And then something happened in the 18th century when medical professionals decided to lump migraines together in with other nervous disorders, such as hysteria. 
um, which of course was, you know, a, a pseudo scientific disease that was um, diagnosed in women who were seen as, you know, over emotional, overexcited, or oversensitive. And so there, there was an association established between migraines and women. And that association really persisted. You know, some of the experts I talked to for the story said that, you know, one in particular, when he began his training, his medical training in the 1960s, nobody really talked about migraines. And if they did, physicians still believed that migraines were the disorder of neurotic women. And we uh, are talking with Marina Corrin right now, staff writer at The Atlantic, about migraine, migraine research and treatment. We've made a lot of strides, but not everyone is getting connected with that treatment. And Marina, one of the things uh, that really surprised me is that out of the people that report having regular migraine, the majority of them have not sought official treatment or diagnosis. Why do you think that is? Yeah, and I've actually I've had to reckon with my uh, reasoning for not seeking out enough medical treatment for this this condition again, which I didn't really think of as a condition um, personally. I've had migraines now for about a decade, and before that, as a teenager um, and as a child, I had childhood epilepsy, and for whatever reason, that vanished around my late teens, and I never quite got an explanation for why I had had seizures. But then the migraines started, and I kind of accepted those as a just a fact of my slightly broken brain, right? A fact of my existence. And the researchers I spoke with for this story say that a lot of people feel the same way about their migraines. They they normalize them. They see them as something that they can handle on their own and maybe doesn't require um, real medical intervention. Um, of course, some people who don't seek care are just not able to because um, they may not be able to afford migraine drugs. Uh, they may not have health insurance that can cover their treatment. And there are you know, other more systemic issues. For example, there are just not that many migraine experts out there. Uh, migraine doctors that really know a lot about the latest treatment, the latest remedies, and the physicians that are out there, they are quite concentrated in major metropolitan areas in the United States. So you're leaving you know, huge parts of rural America um, without doctors that really understand this condition and what can be done for it. Let's go to our phones right now at 800-642-1234. We have Lisa with us in Madison. Hi, Lisa. Hi. I'm just wondering if there's any other treatment for pregnant women in the early 2000s um, both of my pregnancies, I'd had migraines before, and I got them during the pregnancies. I would lay around for days. Some of them were severe enough, though, that I was throwing up, and then I'd have to go into the ER, and because I was getting dehydrated, and uh, they would have to give me a shot of morphine. Um, so I wonder if there's anything else out there now for pregnant women. Lisa, thanks for calling in and sharing your experience. Uh, Marina, is there anything uh, that you ran into in your reporting regarding uh, complications during pregnancies? Yeah, I mean, well, first off, Lisa, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I'm with you. One thing I've learned through doing the story is that there's a lot of us out there and solidarity is key when you're a migraine sufferer. Um, I mean, this is a great question and I wish I had a better answer. I didn't um, didn't dive too deeply into um, potential treatments for people who are pregnant. But, um, you know, one thing that is clear migraine is a type of threshold disorder and some people just have a lower threshold for um, getting these attacks and what prompts them are triggers and unfortunately 
um, one trigger for migraine is simply having a uterus, right? <laughs> Being um, a person who ovulates, who um, can give birth, who menstruates. And so I think there's probably a lot more that can be done for pregnant women and pregnant people. Um, I would love to, to do a bit more digging and get back to Lisa on that. Lisa, thanks for the call. And Marina, Lisa also mentioned uh, to our producer that uh, she was told not to use triptans during pregnancy to treat migraines. Can you talk a little bit about those drugs and how um, what they can do? Yeah, so triptans are a class of drugs that were introduced in the 1990s, and they were uh, much more effective and faster at easing migraine pain than earlier drugs had been. Um, but triptans don't necessarily work for everyone. And that's another tricky aspect of migraine treatment. Um, the experts I spoke with said that one of the things that really one of the things that really frustrates them is that one type of medication, one type of treatment plan might work beautifully for one patient, but not at all for another. And that is a huge mystery for doctors. They don't know exactly why that happens. So I'm not sure what it is about triptans that maybe um, it's best if people who are pregnant are not using them, but it is true that, you know, that there is a gap in what physicians call precision, precision medicine here. Um, there are a lot of mysteries about which drugs will work, which won't. And if they do work, sometimes um, the effects fade away and drugs will just simply stop working for migraine sufferers and doctors don't know why. Marina Corin is a staff writer at The Atlantic. We're talking with her about her recent article, It's the Best Time in History to Have a Migraine, So Why Doesn't It Feel That Way? You can join in at 800-642-1234 if you suffer from migraines. How has it affected your life, your work? Have you found a treatment that works? Let us know at 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Dean Knetter. Right now, we're picking up the talk with Atlantic staff writer Marina Corin. She recently wrote about migraine research and treatment. We know a lot more than we used to, but a lot of people aren't getting connected to those treatments. And Marina, before we go back to our callers, I want to um, talk about those new treatments. Uh, you say the last five years, have we've made huge strides. You compared it to the 1990s all over again in your article. What are some of the new uh, treatments out there that we're seeing? That's right. So the reason that things are kind of great in the um, research field right now is because um, at long last, you know, after decades and centuries of suffering, because people have had migraines for as long as we've had brains, um, researchers were able to use advanced um, brain scan and imaging techniques to really understand what was happening in the brain. Of course, they can't really say why, but at least they can see which parts of the brain um, light up during a migraine attack. And so they were able to um, use that information to inform new medications that targeted the regulation of neurotransmitters, specifically one called CGRP, which is known to spike during attacks. And so these new medications have been shown to be effective at um, cutting migraine days, uh, easing symptoms, whether it's in the moment or, or beforehand. One of the more exciting treatments is uh, an infusion, an injection type of medication that you can take, and it is supposed to um, be preventative, right? And and reduce the number of migraine days you have um, per month. So in the beginning, um, people would usually, in the midst of an attack, take something, take a triptan, for example, and hope that it kicked in. Um, whereas now there's a lot more preventative uh, treatments that really target the um, neurotransmitters that people are now really understanding to be involved in migraine attacks. 
we have full phone lines. So let's go uh, to our callers right now. We have uh, Todd with us in the UP of Michigan. Hey, Todd. Hello. What do you want to bring up? Uh, well, that one important treatment for uh, chronic headaches and uh, whatever is uh, to stop taking proton pump inhibitors like Prilosec and Nexium, which cause damage to every organ system, uh, interfere with myelinization of uh, the nerve cells, the coatings on the nerve cells. Lower stomach acid means uh, lower uh, vitamin B12, which means uh, you're not, uh, which interferes, which are important for myelinization. So I base this on 45 years of uh, proton pump inhibitors and chronic migraines and Todd, thanks for the call. Uh, Marina, I'm sure every medication is going to affect people differently, but as you're determining a, a treatment for migraine, I'd imagine that taking into account other medications you are prescribed for might be difficult. That's right, yeah. I think, uh, um, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I imagine there's quite a bit of, um, you, you look into drug interactions and what drugs might be um making things worse for you or better. Um, and, you know, one thing that I kept coming across in my research for this story is just how, um, for example, I take Excedrin for my migraines and have for a long time. And um, lots of people, I think, also take a lot of over-the-counter medications to treat their migraine symptoms. And it turns out that if you overuse them and um, they might actually backfire and make your migraine headache pain even worse. And after hearing that, it seemed kind of obvious. But before that, I was always reaching for the Excedrin thinking it would be making me better and not realizing that it could actually be prolonging my suffering. So um, there's a lot of, of discussion to be had with your physician if you're able to see one about what is actually working and what's not. Todd, thanks for the call. Let's go next to Ruth in Ladysmith. Hi, Ruth. I was wondering, have you found any correlation with artificial sweeteners? For me, aspartame triggers headaches, and I was told aspartame causes a lot of allergic reactions, and one of the first signs of allergic reaction is a headache. Gotcha, so Ruth. Thank you for the call. Um, Marina, I don't think you wrote about artificial sweeteners, but sugar and chocolate did show up in uh, in your writing. Yeah, this is a great question, right? Um, so much about managing migraines is, you know, the advice that people with migraine get is to lead a healthier lifestyle. And they're usually, if you just Google, like, how do I reduce migraines? You'll get a list from a bunch of reputable institutions telling you all the things you have to avoid. Um, and sweeteners, artificial sugars, chocolate, all of that shows up. Um, what's interesting, though, is some of the researchers I talked to said that, you know, they are still trying to understand exactly how triggers work and whether triggers that we believe to be triggers of migraine are actually triggers. Um, for example, one of the researchers I spoke with said that MSG, the common food additive, um, probably doesn't actually induce migraines, even though it shows up on a lot of these lists as a food trigger. Um, and there is some research showing that sometimes before the true awful symptoms of a migraine have come on, you are already in that migraine phase. You know, the gears are already moving forward in your 
in your brain and you might reach for a bar of chocolate and think, oh no, this is going to give me a migraine. And when it does, you blame the bar of chocolate. But actually a symptom of um, a pre-migraine phase is food cravings. So researchers are currently exploring whether the fact that you know, you're craving chocolate and eating chocolate with those artificial sweeteners in it. Um, they're trying to find out, find out whether the migraine actually made you do that and not, you know, maybe that wasn't the trigger and something else was. That's another tricky part about having a migraine. It's never just one trigger that brings one on. It could be, you know, poor night's sleep from the night before or from two nights before. So it's all kind of messy. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Ruth. Let's go uh, to Margaret next in Whitewater. Hi, Margaret. Hi. Um, yes, I have a, a solution that's helped me with every single migraine I've ever had. And I started getting migraines at age 14 um, around my um, menstrual period. So um, anyway, I went to a doctor in Boston um, when I was in my 20s. And he said, and I also got the auras and, you know, flashing lights and things like that. He said, when you get the aura, change your blood flow by doing any kind of intense exercise just has to be really intense for about 20 minutes don't um walking won't work but running swimming so i tried it and once with a swimming pool jumped in right when the aura came and within 20 minutes it was completely gone no side effects um i've done running now, when it's bad weather in Wisconsin, I do a stationary bike. And once I break a sweat and I guess the blood flow has changed, it completely goes away. So um, that doctor is the only doctor who's ever told me that, but it's been like a, a miracle for me. So wow. I just wanted to, to say that, yeah. Wow, Margaret, thanks for, uh, for sharing. And I'm glad you found something that works for you. Uh, Marina, it seems like there are a lot of different solutions out there. Some work for some, maybe not for others. What do you think? Yeah, no, that's such an interesting story. And I wonder, right, if if her symptoms went away, because it did have something to do with, um, you know, blood flow in vessels in the brain. As I said before, uh, migraine is not strictly a vascular disorder, but um, the way that the blood moves around is it does contribute to headache pain. And so some of the medications that are out there, um, including triptans, they work to um, constrict blood vessels that are inflamed to try to ease symptoms that way. So maybe um, extreme exercise also has some type of similar effect. Um, but what I love most about all these listener calls is everyone sharing their very individual stories for what works for them. And that's really what I found in my research for this story is that um, people try all kinds of different things. Um, I know of one, a friend of mine who shotguns a Coke, a can of Coke when she feels a migraine coming on and that works for her to chug that soda. Um, and yeah, it, it, migraine treatment, you know, whether you are popping Excedrin or shotgunning Cokes or you are um, taking triptans or some of these CGRP infusions, there are lots of different options. I would recommend that everyone go see a specialist if they can, if they're really struggling with this. But if something is working for you, it's working for you. And as long as it's not harmful in other ways, stick with it because migraines are miserable. And Marina, I think we'll have to leave it there. There's a lot left to talk about, but I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and joining us today. Of course, anytime. I'm wishing all your listeners uh, many migraine-free days. Marina Corin is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She talked with us about her latest article, It's the Best Time in History to Have a Migraine, So Why Doesn't It Feel That Way? 
looking at strides we've made in migraine research and treatment. Not all of those treatments have made it down to the majority of migraine sufferers, though. A reminder that if you want to listen back to this conversation, share it with a friend, or find any of our past shows, you can search the Ideas Network program archives at WPR.org. You can also stream both of our networks live there or on the WPR app and stay current with the latest coverage from our news department. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Ferret. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. 